Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's bi-weekly uh, podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, uh, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm also co-editor of PW Comics World. I'm also the graphic novels review editor for Publishers Weekly, as well as the editor and main writer for The Beat. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm their podcast producer, and I write for both of them. Okay, this week on uh, More to Come, we're going to start off with um, a look at SPX, a small press expo, this weekend at uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, then we're going to look at the week in digital comics. Uh, of course, we're going to be talking about the new 52, um, DC, uh, DC Comics' relaunch of all these issues, and our, our reviews of each of the uh, initial batch. Uh, number four on our listing will be The Beguiling is opening a comic shop for kids. Number five, we're going to look at Kickstarter and, and crowdfunding for, uh, for, for comics and how it's being used. And then we'll end up uh, talking, looking at some uh, titles we think are interesting. So we'll start off with the Small Press Expo, uh, a, a haven for uh, small press and self-published titles. And um, Yeah, and it's kind of, a, it's a, down in Bethesda, it's kind of the dean of the, uh, the mini indie comic circuit that we have now that also consists of like SPX, uh, the Alternative Press Expo, um, TCAF up in Toronto, but uh, SPX is one of the oldest, the longest running. It's really one of the best established too, and I, I've heard a lot of people talk about how uh, they make more money at SPX. Uh, publishers make more money there than uh, even like shows in much bigger mm-hmm. metropolitan areas. So uh, that, commensurate with that, a lot of books are debuting there. Uh, CBLDF is going to be selling copies of Craig Thompson's Habibi uh, exclusively for, uh, to benefit them. Um, there is uh, a benefit for the late Jeff Alexander, a former uh, runner of SPX who died very mm-hmm. tragically. Um, of course, there'll be the Ignatz Awards of on course. Saturday mm-hmm. night with uh, Dustin Harbin emceeing this year and the Chocolate Fountain afterwards. That's always a huge highlight <laughs> of uh, SPX. But, uh, I, you know, in general, really looking forward to this yeah. show. So many great comics are going to be there. Um, just it's a great place. It, it, it's probably still a place where you can really find a book that will just blow you away that you hadn't heard about. That's certainly what happened last year with uh, uh, Duncan the Wonder Dog. Um, uh, I'm going to be down there uh, just for one day on Saturday. Um, Heidi's going to be down there for the whole weekend. Yeah, now by the time you actually hear this, we'll have been there. But anyway, That's it's true. awesome. We're really looking forward to it. So we'll... we'll um and there's a full slate of, of programming. Yes, I'm. Also. Uh, the uh, hopefully I'll have some uh, audio of it, but the, I'm really looking forward to uh, a panel I'm doing on the secret history, history of women cartoonists with Diane Newman, uh, Jessica Abel, Robin Chapman, and mm-hmm. um, uh, Alexa Daniels, um, and uh, who does the Ladies Making Comics blog. And um, you know that's just the kickoff. There's so much great programming here. There's a Sounds great. Justin yeah. Brown will be there. Yeah. Johnny Ryan. Oh, it's awesome. Alex you know, and, and a lot of great female guests. That yes, Kate Beaton will be there. Um, da, Raj Chast, the New Yorker cartoonist, who, as I understand it, has only been invited once before to a comic show. This is only the second time she's ever been a guest at a comic show, and that's kind of outrageous. It's but sort of um, amazing. But, but uh, one of the really interesting things mm-hmm. about this year's SPX is how they've teamed with the Library of Congress for a uh, for a collection of uh, mini-comics. And uh, this will be the SPX collection at the Library of Congress. It's going to collu- uh, include a lot of the collateral materials surrounding SPX, which, as uh, Warren Bernard, this year's director, explained to me, they don't even have like a complete collection of all the... Mm-hmm badges or art for them. So the Library of Congress is actually going to be archiving this, and that, that's that's pretty exciting. And many comics in general, I mean, through 
Through SPX? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. To In order to be included in the collection, you will have to have been an exhibitor at SPX. Yeah. But luckily, uh, most of the cool people have been at SPX, um, at least on the East Coast. So it, it opens it up to a wide variety of uh, contributors. So That is the one gap in the Library of Congress, is that they have slightly less of the things that don't have ISBNs. Mm-hmm. So, right, you right. know, all these, this wonderful DIY stuff is flying under the radar a lot of the time with them. So anything that gets more mini-comics into somewhere where they can be archived for history is It's fantastic, yeah. And uh, Warren told me this all got started when he was volunteering at the Library of Congress, and he got to be friendly with some of the librarians there, and, you know, now it's developed into an actual collection, so, you know, our our minis will be archived in America's, uh, well, no, the Smithsonian's America's junk drawer. And didn't uh, SPX institute a uh, graphic novel library award this year where they essentially give a giant collection of graphic novels uh, to a library branch of their choice? Yes. uh, I've I've forgotten, unfortunately, the the, uh, library system that's getting this Mm -hmm. year's, but this is the initial graphic novel library. But, yeah, I mean, it's really a great example of uh, a show... Uh, getting in touch with their community. Yes. You know, in this case, their community happens to uh, be the Library of Congress, but, you know, that's great. So, um, really good stuff happening down there. Uh, okay, moving on to d- the week in digital comics. Um, I, things that really jump to mind are IDW uh, Publishing just announced that it is uh, releasing a, uh, you know, a limited but uh, but interesting selection of graphic novels, about 20, on the the um, through the iBook store and the iBook format, and that's Apple's uh, retail channel, and they're they're releasing about twenty titles, including uh, Code Word Geronimo, the uh, uh, the the graphic nonfiction account of the uh, Osama bin Laden raid. So uh, uh, Apple's uh, iBook store has been uh, a, a, both an attractive platform and one that does not really have as many books. Uh, I think at last count we had said that they had somewhere around 100,000 titles, making them really one of the smaller venues for books. Part of the problem, of course, is that um, uh, um, Apple uh, has the agency model. Um, books on the, uh, sold through the iBook store generally tend to cost much more than they would on other platforms. Um, uh, but this is kind of a step for, up for, for Apple and for, uh, and for IDW in the, only in the sense that the, the iPad, of course, is a great a great platform for watching for 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 reading comics. But don't they already have an app? They do have an app, but uh, they don't necessarily uh, have an app through the iBook Store. Okay. Um, Calvin, what is the agency model? I know that's thrown around a lot in digital comics, but just for anybody who isn't up on all the the, the agency model is a uh, a a retailing strategy where in the publisher designates an agent who will act as a seller for the publisher. The reason why publishers have embraced this model is that they can dictate the price because then the agent that is designated as the seller cannot discount the price in any way. Mm -hmm. It has to be sold at the price uh, insisted on by um, the publisher. This, This model became popular very recently basically because of the clashes over Amazon and Amazon's pricing policies of which certain books, some e-books, were basically sold below cost. Amazon basically had instituted a de facto pricing standard of $9.99, 
the publishers were coming to feel that these 9.99 ebooks were basically undermining hardcover sales of the same books. Uh, they felt that that Amazon was becoming far too powerful. Was uh, uh, were, were actually preventing publishers. Now publishers were actually making money on this, but for the for the most part, they really felt like they were losing power over their own inventory. Yeah. Um, so basically, it's just like so. If the iBooks uh, with IDW is under the agency model, it just means that they can charge a bit more than they would under Comixology. Is that kind well, of the bottom line? Well, it means that they or? they they almost have to charge more because app because you have to go through the Apple uh, system, and the Apple system means that you're going to have to go through the Apple in in app purchasing right. system, right. which means a thirty percent commission. For Apple, probably yeah, probably the best way to check this out is really just to fire up your iPad and see what it is. And grits in. <laughs> yeah, and and I think what you'll find uh, uh, of the graphic novels that the IDW has on the thing, they're they're roughly about nine ninety nine, a little bit more than generally digital comics are, are priced at. Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, it, that's a big first step, I think. Though, I mean, it's it's evolving very quickly there. And uh, there was another. Yes. Uh, um, one more bit of digital news, Naruto that perennial bestseller is now going day and date. This is leading up to it by bringing out several volumes that have not come out digitally yet, one a week, until they catch up with the most current volume hitting print, and then it will come out at the same time as the print volume. So uh, the best-selling comic out there is actually going day and day, you know. Yep. Uh, well, and also, I, I'm gonna throw the this, the future. throw this in there. I've seen so much. There's been so much coverage of DC's digital day and date this week uh, in regards to the new 52, and they're all like pioneering, brand new. You know, Archie Comics has been doing this since March or yeah. April. So uh, yeah, and it's not like yeah. DC didn't do day and date before for some yeah. books, but I guess it's just the fact they're doing it across well, the line. Well, again, maybe? just to say, mm -hmm. you know, Archie was already doing yes. their entire yeah. line. Their entire so line. Yeah. you know, and I, I, I understand. There's some, uh, but you know, really, as we all know, I mean, most of these decisions are sort of made with one eye on the on the uh, brick and mortar market, trying to to some extent appease retailers, or really sort of to nurse them through this transitional period. So, but ultimately, making the digital and the print copies available at the same time is where the industry is headed, yeah. in the print as well as in uh, uh, in the, in the uh, prose industry as well as in the yeah. comics. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. So anyway, speaking of the new 52, uh, Kate, how did that roll out this week? Week one. Week one. Well, theoretically, this is really week two because the very first volume, uh, Justice That was League, zero week. That was zero week. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Comics and zero issues. That's yeah. right. Yeah, zero they, they week. They still do that, don't they? Oh. So this is, I guess, week one if you go by that logic. Gee, I wonder if we're being all written by Frank Miller and don't know <laughs> it. Um, so it, it was kind of an interesting slate. We have, what was it, 16 books in the New 52? Uh, well, I think the first batch of, of uh, oh, 14. about 14. 14. And, of course, uh, the PW Comics World staff has we taken it on it to review them. them all. And we're going to continue that uh, until we've gone through the whole 52. So far, it's been a very grueling process. Some of us lagged behind, but, you know, we had a no-reader-left-behind uh, <laughs> yes, policy. Yeah. So each of using the buddy system, we were able to get through it. Yes, uh, we have a method, a method, so that no one can whine about not getting their favorite or getting something they really don't grok. And that is, we deal them out like cards <laughs> in the office yes. here. And what you get... You get. Yeah. 
Actually, what it looked like was a bunch of kids, uh, 12-year-olds on the corner, uh, swapping comic books. Uh, something that I went through many, many years ago when I was a kid. But um, uh, um, we didn't have to, when I was a kid, I didn't have to sit down and review five of them in one day. But we got through it. And, um, you know, it's an interesting crop of, of books. Um, obviously, there's some we love and some we didn't. Um, anybody want to uh, sound out about anything? Oh, and sometimes we read each other's books, so we may have different opinions. Well, where do you why don't start? we pick a few to talk about? Well, I, 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 I would just give it an overall comment. I mean, what to me is really interesting about the whole line is that uh, it looks so much alike. And I know a lot of people are saying, oh, there's diversity, there's a war book. But it's like the color scheme is so similar mm -hmm. on so many of these. Calvin and I mm -hmm. were sitting there and looking and... But like you just happen to have a stack of books, and they all had the same green on yeah, the corner. A, there is a but, certain uh, sort of awkward that, green. Yeah, and I, there was one book in this batch that that broke from format really strongly. I felt, and that was the OMAC book, which is a deliberate homage to Jack Kirby, uh, drawn by Keith Giffen and Scott Koblish, and it had uh, like white gutters and kind of this candy color uh, color scheme, and I really enjoyed it. You know, and it's written by Dan DiDio, so it, it wasn't like. You know, I, I went in there with, like, not really knowing what to expect, and I actually enjoyed it more than some of the other books I read. But I, um, I feel like this batch of comics, for all they varied very differently in actual content, visually were more samey than usual. I mean, like, it's the new DC, but it feels more old. Well, yeah, I mean... I mean, certain books certainly were zanier, I think, and made an interesting break with the past and others. Certainly Action Comics number one and, and Grant Morrison's... Yeah, that one's so totally different. You know, it, you know even, even if you know, we, may, we may disagree on, on um, what boy, we think of the book itself, disagree. but it's certainly uh, a break with Superman from the past and a break with um, the, uh, the, the, the basic storyline that we all know. So... So uh, why don't we talk about action? Well, I, I will say it's it's a well, very no spoilers. No but. spoilers, but it's just a, a Graham Morrison. If you've read Super Gods, he really went back and looked at the original action mm -hmm. number one, which was and in it, uh, Superman was if not a dick, he was at least kind of a brash, um, very forward. Uh, you know what you see is what you get kind yeah. of guy, mm -hmm. and he had a little bit of an ego. And mm -hmm. in this version, um, Grant's going back to that. He's, yeah. you know, this Superman doesn't know that he's supposed to be a paragon of all that's good. He's yeah. just kind of a, you well, know, a young uh, farm boy feeling his superheroic oats. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like he took that and he turned it up to 11. <laughs> and um, if that's what you want, I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's a bad comic. I'm just saying that it's a completely different personality from yes. pretty much any version of Superman you've seen before. And if you like this personality, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you um, hadn't seen it before unless you were 80 years old. But yeah. Well, no, but even then, even then it was not as extreme as this. It was... Yeah. No, and in many ways, uh, I think uh, Le even Lex Luthor has a, a different... Um, well, a different personality to case, some extent. Well, Although he's a chameleon of a character anyway. It's hard anyway. to tell with Lex Luthor yeah. because he's, he's, you know, always putting on a show yes, of one kind or another. Anyway. But frankly, I found him more sympathetic in this one than usual for all he was doing terrible, terrible things because because of Superman's very unpredictability and brashness in this, you could really see how someone would be concerned about what he was going to do next with all this tremendous power. And I feel, but I, I just feel that was fresh, you know? I mean, this movie reminded me of nothing so much as the Hudsucker Proxy, which is like the Coen Brothers, mm -hmm. one of their 30s homages. And I mean, it really is... 
uh, set in a never, never wear, you know, a never time uh, that uh, that references that kind of '30s optimism and '30s, '30s optimism. Well, '30s kind of can do, but the '30s uh, uh, did the the um, film and TV of the time tried to be more yeah. upbeat be more because obvious. times were actually times so were bad. Sure. Times so, were tough. So I mean, media was yeah, media was trying to, to be you escapist. Know, was, yeah, yeah, it was escapism. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, mean, I, I enjoyed I like, it as well. Uh, I thought the, uh, the take on everything from the costume to the new attitude to some interesting diversions from uh, the, the Superman uh, dogma. Uh, I thought it was fresh. Uh, and in some ways might be the freshest of the, the issues that we reviewed. Yeah. Uh, I would just like to say that I'm not being like the pusher of the status quo here. Many of the changes I really liked. I was I thought it was very interesting to have him back at the beginning, and and having like a really hard time in Metropolis mm-hmm. and sort of downtrodden, and I, I felt that really worked for Clark Kent. And I liked their Lois, and I liked I liked the whole take on everything pretty much except for his personality. But that's just me. And hey, it's set like five years in the past, so he has time to grow up. And I and, and I actually I, I thought most of your points were well taken. Actually, I didn't necessarily disagree with him. Although I may uh, disagree with the interpretation. Well, I may yeah. be disagreeing yeah, with your, your interpretation of the points. You like but lemons, certainly, I like um, you know, uh, I, I don't completely disagree with you. Uh, and, and I also think it'll be interesting to see how this uh, measures oh. up against the first issue of actually Superman. Yeah, uh, yeah. When that comes up. How will they match up? Even in Swamp Thing, number one, you see Superman now that he's got his costume showing up and, and yeah. uh, recruiting Alec Holland, and you know you can see he's already kind of toned down in this this five year time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of Swamp Thing, that was probably my favorite of the ones that uh, that I read. It was uh, by Scott Snyder and uh, Yannick Paquette. Really well done. Um, I wouldn't say it was groundbreaking uh, in any way, shape, or form, but you know that's okay. It's just kind of taking the Swamp Thing. Uh, mythos and um, reinventing it a little bit with uh, instead of Alec Holland, uh, this guy who got caught in some bioregenerative stuff being turned into this uh, plant elemental and not existing anymore, Alec is back yeah. and Swamp Thing is separate and uh, they have to fight. Uh, it looked a little bit like Arcane to me. Um, so uh, so we'll see where that goes. But uh, excellent. Comment. I mean, a couple of my favorites for differing reasons was Men of War, the new war comic uh, by Evan Brandon. Um, now, I, I won't say that I, I loved it, but I do love the the, the 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 extension of the Sergeant Rock character because the star of this book is the grandson of Sergeant Frank Rock. Uh, obviously, Joe Kubert's great war hero. Uh, but I'd also point out the backup story in the book may have even more potential. Um, Navy Seals, Human Seals, written by Jonathan Bankin. Uh, a very interesting story about a military unit out on patrol and all the things that can go wrong. But uh, I, I like the art. Uh, I like the sense of story. I like the cliffhanger ending. Uh, but I'm also looking forward to how Men of War develops and how uh, Corporal uh, Frank, uh, Corporal Rock goes and um, you know, whether, you know, whether they'll develop the series. Um, I think my favorite was the first actually new book out of the lot, Batwing, which is a completely new title about a completely new character who just re- just popped up in Batman Incorporated. It's set in Africa, in the Congo, and uh, the hero, Batwing, aka David Zimimbi, is is fighting supervillains and a corrupt system 
in the Congo, and it's, it's very new and fresh, and you've got a character who's sort of wondering about whether this whole bat costume thing is really a good idea, and whether anyone could ever possibly be scared of it. It's, uh, it was great fun, and I'm very interested in the next thing. And it really ended with a bang. And just really quickly, I just want to mention uh, Static Shock, the, uh, yes, the, the Dwayne McDuffie co-crea- uh, co-creation, um, uh, a former Milestone uh, comic. Uh, it, it Weirdly, uh, I had a flashback to uh, Marvel Comics. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think we ch- chatted about this. I don't know whether Bob Harris had anything to do with it or not, but it read more like a Marvel comic from the 1960s than anything I've read recently. But that said, it's well-designed costume. It's a lively uh, cast of characters. Um, it's mostly fun book. It's you know not a dark superhero, uh, even if he's fighting evil. Uh, and, and I'm looking forward to how that develops as well. I would actually say this is a, a better relaunch of the relaunch because the last time they tried to relaunch stat- Static, they decided to make him darker and edgier, and that didn't really work. So I'm glad they're giving him a chance <laughs> well, to be Static. Well, word on the street is there. Uh is something of a humor deficit among some of the New 52. So, you know, Static is definitely a character that goes against it. Um, I, I, just to throw in there, I do think, like, the New 52 is, uh, I mean, it's really sucking all the wind out of the, uh, out of the room. And uh, as far as any other publishers this month, and, I mean, there's a lot of other. Remember when Ultimate Spider-Man was going to be the big book this month? Yeah, yeah. That's actually yeah. coming out in a couple Marvel weeks. Marvel who? Yeah. <laughs> I definitely want to read it. Yeah, yeah. So well, hopefully, I mean, even we are obsessed with New Fifty Two. But well, um, I mean, it's it's a big month for yes. DC. I think it's fair to Although just go. Marvel it's their month. Some, Marvel makes some gracious, actually, statements. I thought something about Tom well, Brevard was saying they did because if it fails, they fail. Yeah, you know. Right. So yes, I know something. And and actually, even at the launch party, uh, Jim Lee. Uh, mentioned to me that he had gotten uh, a couple of text messages and things from Marvel creators wishing them good luck. Just, uh, you know, this, is, not, this is a shot in your heart for the whole industry. Yeah, they're not, or it can be. They're not deathly enemies. I mean, I think it's yeah. possible for people to be polite about, hey, congratulations on your new initiative. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, next up we have an interesting little item um, that up in uh, Toronto, they are opening North America's first comic shop for kids. Uh, Little Island, uh, which is owned by the people, owned and run by the people who do The Beguiling, uh, one of Toronto's best comic shops. And the store is right down the street from uh, The Beguiling. Um, this announcement has been met with kind of shock and amazement by a lot of other retailers because uh, I, I, there's never been anything like a kid's comic shop. But of course, stores are closing, bookstores are closing, uh, kids' children's bookstores are not a gimme anywhere. So um, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like a great development. I think it's a great experiment. If the market can bear it, this is a great idea because, I mean, kids' comics are the, the largest growing segment of the comic industry right now. I mean, it's that. great. So if they can pull this off, we may see a whole new genre of comic store coming out. And the, the, the Beguiling is unanimously considered one of the, just the smartest Retailers, really, comic right. retailers on the scene. Yeah, they know their market. So. Chris Butcher is the uh, is the is, he's the manager of the store. Uh, well known as a blogger and personality in comics. Uh, if anyone can make this work, I think uh, Chris and the Beguiling can. We'll be watching with interest. Um, and moving right along to uh, we have another news item out of the frosty north. Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer are putting their new tour up on Kickstarter. And they've already made over $72,000 in pledges, which is a good $50,000 more than anticipated. 
And this has stirred up a certain amount of controversy over what Kickstarter is really for and what uses of it are appropriate. So what are they doing with this? Like opening a hospital? I mean, what's... No, no, no. This money was supposed to fund their joint music and speaking tour because, as everyone knows, Neil Gaiman is an award-winning comic creator and writer who likes to read his stories aloud to his audiences. And, and he's very good at it. He's amazing at it. And his fiance, Amanda Palmer, is a popular sort of quirky pop musician who likes to tour on her own. <laughs> and so they've decided to tour together. And in order to fund it, instead of going through typical venues, they've decided to use Kickstarter. Um, what they're going to do with the extra $50,000, we don't know. And some people... Well, what was the $20,000 supposed to pay for to begin with? I mean, were they staying tour. at the no, Ritz-Carlton? I, I mean, how long was the tour? Believe, like a year? I believe I mean, their plan was to actually to, to DIY the whole thing. And all the things that would normally be covered by a record label or by the clubs themselves, I think they were planning to cover right, themselves. Right. And then thus try a different business model. Well, I mean, this is we've seen this on Kickstarter before, and we've done a couple of stories about Kickstarter really as an alternative funding source for for, for publishing comics. Um, we've seen it, in fact, that very well known comics personalities, uh, uh, many actually who have publishers for their pro- projects, are going to Kickstarters to for additional funding to up their page rate or to do marketing and publicity or whatever. I mean, Kickstarter is in some ways a blank sheet for, for, for whatever you want to project on it. Yeah, but That's I, I why think it's so brilliant. But, but I think, exactly. But And, you know, people are going to pay what they want to pay. And exactly. I mean, people you don't love, have to donate to it but people, if you think it's an inappropriate I think use. people think they're going to get, you know, a handshake from Neil Gaiman and, uh, you know. Well, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, I mean, I think we're seeing this with wo- womanthology. Unless he's offering that as a premium, yeah. you would well, be silly to assume. I, I like, uh, you know, I, I, it's a very interesting. I, I don't know any of the... the um, details behind it so um, um, well, you know, I think and I, I do know Neil well, and Amanda we, I, I, I mean I would uh, I, I I hope uh, they're both very ethical people I'm sure yeah, they have so other I mean, plans maybe we'll give it to the comic book legal yeah, defense fund who knows um, but, but, but I think we're going to see even more of this as it's clear that as in anything else celebrities have a better chance of raising money than if you're not a celebrity well I, I think that was part of the controversy was that some people felt they were sucking air out of the room of Kickstarter and, and taking up money that might have gone to them. Um, great. Um, interesting books coming up uh, this week. Oh, well, these are uh, not even... Well, this week we have Troop 142 by Mike Dawson. Uh, this just came out from Secret Acres. Uh, this is a really... Uh, great story about some Boy Scouts who are on a trip and they learn things about themselves and Boy Scouts. And it's very funny, very true to life. I mean, Mike really has a great yeah, sense great of... For, wasn't his last book about... Uh, Freddie his, Mercury. His, yeah, yeah, yeah his, obsession. his obsession with Queen and Freddie Mercury. Yes, yeah, great uh, memoir. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, you know, Mike really has a very sure handling of his material, very intuitive, and he really captures the kids at a in a very sensitive way, and it's a, it's a good good read, very good read. Um, another book that came in was the Mark Twain's autobiography, 1910, 2010, by the great Michael Kupperman, one of the yes. funniest people who ever lived. And this is really uh, uh, interesting because it's not just comics. Of course, he's known for Tales to Thrizzle, um, but this has got text. Uh, it's got pages of drawings of Mark Twain, the chimps, and Albert Einstein, Mark Twain in space, um, 
Uh, if you like to laugh, Michael Kupperman will make you laugh. And uh, also, uh, DC is releasing, speaking of OMAC, they're releasing a whole bunch of Kirby books, uh, like nice hardcovers, and the Commandy one just came out, The Last Boy on Earth, and, you know, Jack Kirby, you just can't go wrong. Thank you, DC. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and I just, I'd like to just throw a, a quick spotlight on uh, uh, Brian Wood's uh, new book, uh, The New York Five, um, uh, done with Ryan Kelly doing the art. Um, it's a it's a sequel, really, to The New York Four, which came out under the, maybe not so lamented, <laughs> but but certainly defunct Minx, um, uh, the former DC imprint. Um, this is being published by Vertigo, uh, and actually one of the, uh, finally some books coming out of Vertigo now. Uh, this was, I think, on the uh, has been uh, been slated for a while, but it's the New York Five. Uh, it's uh, it's the original book was the story of really four NYU freshmen that come together, um, young women uh, um, learning to deal with each other. Sometimes, very often, the first time on their own. It's really a great uh, coming of age uh, a portrait, uh, and and a portrait of of New York City as well. And the New York Five looks to be uh, very much like that. Though they've added a new a new member, uh, a young homeless woman, um, and so we're looking to see as they as they grow as people, as they learn to deal with each other, and um, and and once again how they look, deal with New York. So it's just Wood is is really a, a, a terrific writer and a really a writer who seems to really have a knack for kind of the 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 searching young personality. Um. So we'll see you next week. That's right. Oh, you know what? Before we go real fast, uh, as you listen to this, we'll be coming up on the Brooklyn Book Festival. And both oh, Calvin right. and I yes, will and I be, <laughs> I will have a panel as well. We will both be there. They have a huge graphic novel presence. They have a huge lineup of cartoonists. Um, I'm doing a panel on humor with Kate Beaton, Michael Kupperman, uh, Jennifer Hayden, and Keith Knight. Oh, my God. That's great. Uh, Calvin, I know what you're doing. Yes, I'm doing. Um, I'm doing a draw off with um, uh, with Raina Telgemeier, uh Dave Roman, um, and another cartoonist who I have to apologize. <laughs> yeah, uh, your name is slipping away from me, and I was just looking at that. So my apologies, but uh, come to the Brooklyn Book Festival uh, September uh, 17 and 18. Uh, no, it's only one day. Oh, it's one it day. The 18th. September 18th. Sunday at Sunday. Uh, at the Brooklyn. Uh, Court uh, down in downtown Brooklyn. Yes. All right. All right. All right. Until then, there is more to come. More Always to come. more to come. <laughs>